0: You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 9. This episode, I'm talking with the maverick wildlife filmmaker, Kim Walleter. Kim had the good fortune of spending his early years growing up in the wilds of Africa on the Kruger National Park, South Africa, where his father, Henry Walleter, was the head ranger. After two years' national service in the South African Mounted Infantry and a degree in grassland science, Kim entered the wildlife arena managing a game farm in Botswana. Later, he served as senior warden on the Malamala Nature Reserve in Swaziland before taking up wildlife filmmaking. Today, he finds himself following the family tradition, although in a slightly different way, making documentaries of Southern African wildlife. Since 1988, Kim has made wildlife documentaries for the National Geographic Channel, the BBC, Discovery Channel and Animal Planet. Kim has developed a very different niche in the wildlife filmmaking market. He spent at least two years on a production getting to bond and develop very intimate relationships with his film subjects. These include leopard, hyena, cheetah and African wild dogs. Through these intimate alliances, he has not only been able to document the animals' lives up close and personal, but people are seeing these animals in a way they've never seen them before and are able to engage more with the animal and almost feel what it's like to be that animal. Kim walks, runs, hunts and sleeps with these animals so much so that they completely accept his presence. This intimacy provides a new look into animal behavior, which at times is new to science. Currently, Kim lives on the Mashatu Game Reserve, Botswana, where he's out every day and often all night living alongside his film subjects. This is no job, Kim says, but a true passion handed down through generations of the Walleter family. Kim has produced, filmed and directed a long list of films, including Africa's Deadly Dozen, Living with Leopards, Predators at War, A Dog's Life, Lioness in Exile, and Hyena Queen, to name a few. He also directed, filmed, produced, and stars in the Discovery Channel's Man Cheetah Wild. Good morning, Kim, Uh, or should I say good afternoon? Um, It's uh, 6 a.m. in the U.S. here, but I think over there in Botswana, it's around 3 p.m., is that right?
1: It's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, yeah. It's a lovely day. I'm sitting here in my camp, sunny day. It's always sunny here. Just It's very cool.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks so much for taking the time out. I know you're super busy. Um, you were telling me uh, that you um, you head out typically most evenings to film, and so you're going to be heading out after this. And so I completely appreciate that. We'll get on and ask you some questions. Um, so first of all, Kim, I know that you grew up in the Kruger National Park as your father was the head ranger there. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in the Kruger National Park?
1: Well, Jake, you know, I... <laughs> I, I can't really tell you much because, unfortunately, my my dad died when I was five. So I only had my first five years there, and, you know, be, and I just really didn't get around. So it's been a very different – I didn't get that much I, – I don't remember much of it. Uh, you know, my grandfather was the very first game ranger there, and he was a bit of a legend for, you know, he killed an adult male lion and they pulled him off his horse and he dragged him off and he killed him with a knife. But other than that, yeah, I mean, my memories and stuff of Kruger are are, are very limited. And I I worked at Mala Mala for ten years, which is I was based fifteen minutes away from where I grew up, um, and that's about the closest I've really been back to Kruger. I've, you know, I've been back a few times, but I, I don't really know the place, unfortunately. And that's very sad because you know it's it's in our family. the the Walter legacy comes from Kruger, and uh, I should be doing more than.
0: So, did you did you um, have much contact with animals throughout your uh, your younger years, or did that happen? Did that kind of evolve later on in life?
1: No, in my no, I didn't really have much interaction in my young. But when I was at university, I couldn't get a job, and I, we knew of this guy in Swaziland, and I said to my mother, "Phone, can you phone the guy and tell him I'll come and work for him for free?" And this is a guy by the name of Ted Riley. Now, Ted Riley started all conservation in Swaziland. Swaziland is a very small country um, that's almost surrounded by South Africa and they were losing a lot of their wildlife and Riley stepped in in the early 60s and went to the late to the late King and suggested that they they do something about it um, and so that's and he developed all these parks in Swaziland And so I went I spent all my university holidays working with Riley now Ted Riley, <laughs> He's a tough guy, and uh, I learned, I mean, he probably, he, he has to be my greatest mentor because I learned everything from, you know, digging holes, putting in poles, chopping down trees, bush clearing, to game capture, to animal husbandry, to, you know, all that stuff, and even filmmaking, and, and strangely enough, you know, the, the day I arrived there, my car had been giving problems on the way, and I, I got there really late one evening. The reserve was all closed, and I stopped in at a farmhouse and said, "How do I get to Riley?" And anyway, they organised it, and he arrived, and he said, "Get in the car." (laughs) He wasn't impressed, and he was with his brother-in-law, who's actually a filmmaker. And we went off, and we were filming frogs for that night. And even then, it never occurred to me as a career for me. I was involved in wildlife management, and I wanted to be. I, I was at the time I was studying a BSc in 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 grassland science, range management, ecology, that sort of thing. And so, I, you know, I had visions of doing what my grandfather and my father did. And um, yet that very first night there, ironically, we went filmmaking. But never in my career did I – never in those early days did I think of filmmaking as a career. It just didn't enter my mind. And, so, yeah, I've never had any training in that field either.
0: You know, it's interesting the amount of people that I speak to who are seasoned professionals who have the same story in terms of filmmaking not being their kind of uh, their targeted pursuit. Um, it's it's very interesting. It seems one of these uh, professions that people kind of fall into or, or learn about later on in life, and um, you know, it's. It seems to be that kind of industry uh, that, that evolves, uh, you know, to get into being a filmmaker, a wildlife filmmaker. Now, you have made numerous, numerous documentaries um, as director, producer, cameraman, um, assistant camera. Can you tell us um, that there's too many to list? <laughs> there's there's so many on your website. Now, I think, am I right in saying it started around 1988 with the Sisterhood, with uh, uh, Spotted Hyenas?
1: Yeah, well, exactly. So, in 1988, we did the sisterhood up in the Okavango Delta in Botswana. Now, Richard Goss, I was, I was a warden of a reserve in Swaziland at the time. And uh, Richard phoned me up and said, Hey, Kim, why don't you want to come filmmaking? And I said, No, why would I want to do something stupid like that? I'm not interested. And um, at the time, I was, you know, I'd, I'd actually just caught the legal advisor to the board that I was working for, I'd caught him poaching on the reserve. Um, I had issues with the chairman that he was uh, having corrupt dealings with stuff. So they were, they were really trying to nail me. And I thought, you know, here I am just doing my job, trying to save this place and the animals. And I'm just being hampered by this. So I thought, well, why not just give it a go? And so off we went. So I, I joined Richard and um, we did the Sisterhood up in Narcovanga, which was a spotted hyena film for the BBC. Um, and that did really well. But then I left Richard after that project because I was asked by our Department of Foreign Affairs in South Africa to go and um, they wanted me to advise the Togolese government in West Africa on their national parks. Now, I was a, a 26, 27-year-old guy, and here they're wanting me to advise this country on their national parks. It was insane. So why would I get that up? So off I went, and uh, and then there was civil strife, so I came back. And I went to see Richard just, out of, just to, as a social visit. And um, I'd actually planned to go game farming, and I had a position lined up where I was going Great. to be doing all the research, flying helicopters, doing anti-poaching, a really cool job. And Richard said to me, you know, am I interested in coming back because he's leaving on Tuesday to go and start on his Brown Hyena movie in in Namibia. And I said, no, I'm not, whatever. He said, well, I'm leaving at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I don't know why, but 6 o'clock on Tuesday morning, I was there. And I went with him. We arrived in Namibia. He gave me 10 rolls of film because we were shooting film in those days. He gave me 10 rolls of film and said, go for it. And uh, on the sisterhood, I didn't shoot anything. I was just assisting with lights and maintenance and stuff. And uh, so, yeah, I basically shot that whole production, and I've been shooting ever since. So it's, yeah, a huge thanks to Richard. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this today.
0: Well, so you were literally thrown in at the deep end. I mean, you, you had some experience on that uh, on the Sisterhood show um, in terms of uh, knowing how to use a camera, but then you literally were thrown into the deep end filming a whole show um, with, the, with the next production.
1: Yeah, no, I was chucked right in there, and it was with a one, an old ACL camera, the Claire. Um, <laughs> it was like a real vintage thing. When you look at think of it today... You look through the viewfinder of it, and you think, "What's that cloudy, murky, funny thing over there? Is that an animal?" And that's what we were filming on. But yeah, so was, right. and uh, and what what really helped me was editing that project. Um, the editor was a guy by the name of Dave Dickey. You probably know Dave from the UK. Um, and Dave, Dave was brilliant. He called me into the edit, and he just crapped on me. I said, why, did, why didn't you carry on shooting here? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And that was the best advice I've ever had. And yeah, I've been shooting since so. then.
0: That, that, that leads us into a great question about gear because um, you know there's this this idea that uh, today I think aspiring filmmakers feel that they need to one have all the latest gear. They see pros out there using certain types of cameras and they think they're the cameras they need but also they feel that they need to know everything there is to know about their gear. And I think less about the wildlife, you know, what, what would you say to that in terms of, you know, what would you say is more important? Is it more important to understand wildlife or is it more important to understand your camera?
1: Oh, I think it's a no brainer. I think, you know, if you're not going to understand your wildlife, it doesn't matter what camera you've got, you're not going to, you're not going to get there. And, you know, I think, the camera hype is is what it is, and you know there's so many different formats and mediums that we can we can um, broadcast our stuff. I mean, I, I've, I I have a blog on on Facebook and, and I put up images and stuff there, and I put up pictures. I mean, just photographs, for instance, of whatever it is shot on my cell phone, and the people are saying, "My, what what camera you got? What lens you've been using?" And all and just on my cell phone, guys. So, you know, I think. The problem, the problem we're up against is that your big broadcasters are dictating what they want, and they're all going 4K, 6K, 8K, or whatever it is now. It's just going through the roof, and um, unless you're shooting on that, you're not going to get in with the big broadcasters. So yeah, it's a bit of a, a catch-22 there. But I think you know, for us, for guys who wanting to get into the field, you know, get into the filmmaking and stuff. And with the means that there is today, with all the online stuff, you don't need to have fancy cameras for that. It's all about content and how you present it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm shooting a show at the moment, and it's, uh, we're doing half an hour a week, and I'm shooting it all with, most of it's with GoPros. Okay, they're 4K GoPros, but they're GoPros. And, uh, you know, nothing fancy, no big lenses. It's all fancy, just simple stuff. So, yeah, I think, you know, without, without understanding animal behavior, I think you're a bit stuffed. And, I, you know, I, I was at Wild Screen Film Festival many years ago, and this guy came to me and he said, oh, I've just finished my four-year degree in zoology, and before that, I did a four-year degree in filmmaking. And I looked at him, and I thought, oh. And he said, I'm ready to be a filmmaker, a wildlife filmmaker. I said, oh, geez, dude, you've wasted seven years of your life and uh, <laughs> he thought I was nuts, and I said, you could in one year, if I was your, if you're passionate about wildlife, that stuff's going to be there. Go and spend one year learning how to be a filmmaker. Then go into the field. That seven years that your parents or whoever paid for your varsity. Use that to go and volunteer or to help out or just, yeah, volunteer wherever you can. you get far more experience that way, and I still believe that. I'm trying to my daughter's at university right now. I'm trying to tell her, get out of there. Come and join me. I'll give you far more experience. <laughs> she didn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I, I think that's super valuable advice because, as we were saying earlier, you know, it's it's experience with wildlife that tends to be the the gateway for wildlife filmmakers. It tends to be that they've uh, typically been working with wildlife and understand wildlife behavior before they pick up a camera. And as you say, you know, learning to use gear these days, any days, you know, whether it was back 20, 30, 40 years ago, or now is really, you know, a far, um, easier learning curve than, than animal behavior. So that is so super, super important. Um, Now, out of all of the filming that you've done and the the numerous shows that you've made, you've worked with many, many types of wildlife, um, from everything from the hyenas to rhinos, uh, crocodiles. What would you say, um, what animal do you prefer working with? What's your favorite animal to go out there and film?
1: Um, A lot of people ask me what's what's my my favorite animal, and and I think... The, that question, what's my favorite animal, is depends on which project you're working on at the time. Um, because you just fall in love with that animal. You can't help it. But uh, the way you're asking the question, what's you know, the fake one that I've worked with and stuff, there's no doubt that hyenas just beat all these animals hands down. Because they are just such – I mean, they, they're such – if you want humor, I mean – all our wildlife stuff, for one, is always so serious, and and I, and that's a huge problem. People, it it gets too serious, and people can't really latch onto it because we're not giving them the love and affection. We're just giving them this serious note the whole time, and this serious stuff dying everywhere, or whatever it is, or being decimated and endangered and stuff. We got to get humor and stuff into it. And hyenas bring that. Hyenas have their own humor. When hyenas laugh, they laugh like us. I mean. <laughs> It's just like people, and uh, and they highly intelligent. You know, they they reckon hyenas have got intelligence on a par with primates, and nobody knows that. These animals that are so totally misunderstood, and that's my mission right now. You know, I'm doing another hyena movie. I'm currently doing one, and and I interact with them like you play with your dog at home, in a very very natural way. It's not hey look what I can do. It's it's such a natural thing. And these I can now walk around the whole pack. And they just lie there and watch me because they understand me, and it's just they're so clever that they can understand that this guy's no threat to us. And then we really see what amazing animals Mm -hmm. these are. And so my mission, you know, the Lion King trashed hyenas, and if you think about it, just about every in, in we our films. I don't want to preach to the converted. And, you know, most of our people who watch National Geographic or discover all the, any of these wildlife channels, I call them the converted people. The people who don't watch them, most of those people who don't watch, wildlife have, have seen the Lion King. So their image of the hyena is from the Lion King, from nowhere else, because they don't know anything else. And there were actually some scientists who tried to sue Disney because of misrepresentation. And... So that's what we're up against. So it's my mission to I wanna dispel all those myths about hyenas and just put them where they deserve to be. And it's quite a mission and and, you know, I did a hyena film before at Malamala called Hyena Queen and I interacted with hyenas and that had huge impact. But it only had impact with the converted. We've got to get into the masses. And I'm thinking of ways and whatever to do that, but it's 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 quite a strong thing, you know, it's a problem and it wasn't long ago that gorillas were thought of animals that would just, you know, they saw human they would kill you. And yet Diane Fossey went in there and changed that whole thing. And, it's, and I had a, when I was editing my Hyena Queen film at, in Washington, the board, the National Geographic board were having one of their quarterly meetings. And the president of the board, Gil Grosvenor, he saw this shot where I'm sitting on the ground and this hyena comes and puts its chin on my hand. Inviting attention, and he said, You know, that's just like that famous photograph where the chimp comes and touches Jane Goodall, and it's exactly the right. same thing, yet nobody wants to feel that and accept that because it's a hyena. So, we got to we got to change all of that. I had a photograph, um, that I took, uh, when was it? Well, it was about a year ago, um, of, of, that I shot here in Botswana, and I had a cheetah with a selfie so my feet were in the frame with a cheetah sniffing my toes two days later an agent contacted me and it went out in five national uk newspapers now a few months before the same agency contacted me because i had a photograph a selfie of a hyena sniffing me and our noses were about an inch apart they have never been able to sell that photograph until recently when it went out as one of the 10 most dangerous selfies ever taken. And that is so wrong and that's what we're up against just because it's, you know, so that's, that's my mission.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's a super interesting subject. I know, you know, it's, it's a hard sell when so many creatures these days, especially some of the shows that go out, which are demonizing many animals, making them look way more dangerous than they are. You know, we've had this with sharks. We've yes. had it with um, crocodiles. We've had it with all sorts. And um, yeah, totally not fair. It's it's there to bring in ratings, yeah um, yeah, You know, I think people don't realize you're far more likely to be in a car accident than to get bitten by a shark, right? But if you watch any of the shows that are around today, um, you would have the opposite opinion that, you know, if you every time you set foot in the water, you know, you're at risk of being bitten. Um, it's got kind of ridiculous. I, I, I had a hard sell years ago. I was making a show on cockroaches. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, geez, I was trying yeah. to show them in a really nice light, but you can imagine how that went. Yeah. Now... Um, Kim, you are a um, a photographer and a camera cameraman, cinematographer. Um, how do you how do you choose what you're going to do? Are you carrying around both your cameras and just pulling one out and doing some filming, then taking pictures, or do you do you choose one day to go out and do pictures and then film on another? How does that work?
1: It's, no, I, I I just I have both of them available. So while I'm driving around, I have my store's camera just on the right next to me. So it's available to quickly pick up and snap a photograph. So usually I, you know, the photography side is when there's something that's just happening so quickly, you need to snap off something. And then otherwise, when there's, you know, whenever there's any action, I've got to film that. Um, But if the action's going on for a long time, whatever, then I'll pull a camera out and, and shoot a few shots and then go back onto, onto the video. And, You know, there have been a few times, not many, maybe a handful that I can think of where, you know, I've missed something because I've taken a still shot instead of filming it. But um, I think the, the plus side is it's, you know, I've got a lot more out of it because I am taking photographs as well, yeah.
0: Now, you are um, lucky enough to be living in your your kind of um, filming area. You live right out there in the reserve um, in a camp. And so you literally can leave your front door, as it were, and head out and start filming. Um, how much easier? I mean, I think to anyone getting into wildlife filmmaking, and certainly us as wildlife filmmakers, know that to find wildlife, it can be extremely hard at times, depending on what you're trying to find. Um you know, take us through a typical day in your life of uh, of a filmmaker.
1: Well, you know, firstly, I mean, yeah, I am based here full-time on the reserve, and I've I've been lucky enough to live like that for the last more than 20 years. Um, I was based on Malamala for 10 years. I was based in Zimbabwe on Malilangwe Game Reserve for 10 years. And so far, I've been on here on Machatu Game Reserve for the last two and a half years. So, you know, I like to get into an area, spend a lot of time there, and I and I base myself – I don't have a home anywhere else in the world. Um, that is my home, and that's where I live. So I'm, I'm very, very fortunate with that. And, and you know, location, I think, these days is is a key. It, it's so hard to find location to do any of these things and to get permissions, and and then there's accostings and all of that. But so my typical day, yeah, I leave here. Because I'm filming hyenas, which are, you know, they – nocturnal. I leave here at about 4 in the afternoon. I take advantage of the good afternoon light for any hyena activity or whatever activity there is, and then I film right through the night and in the early morning again, taking advantage of the good light, getting back to camp at any time between 8, 9, 10 in the morning. Um, And, uh, yeah, so that's that's my day, but that's because it's hyenas and – just taking advantage of, of all of it. You
0: know? Well, that's fantastic. And I should say, I, I started that question by saying you're lucky enough. And I should actually just address and say, you know, it's not luck, it's choices. It's the choices we make and your choices to live there and be in a beautiful place where the wildlife is. But that's certainly not luck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, um, know. That is
1: a choice. And I, you know, I've, I've been very selfish in, in that. I've You know, I know a lot of people... Uh, filmmakers, guides, whatever, who got into this, into the wildlife, into you know this wildlife world, and then found that when they get married and they have kids, that they have to move to town. And uh, I was extremely selfish, and said that you know to my wife that there's no ways I'm not moving to town. That'll kill me. That won't you know I won't be who I am. And so I've managed to stay out here and do what I do and, and, and live this life. And then the kids have to go to boarding school. Well, my kids didn't because my wife moved to town. But those are the, are the problems that one's always up against. And as I say, I was selfish and I've maintained my lifestyle.
0: Now, you are known as the maverick filmmaker um, and you were telling us a little bit about your shots there with the cheetahs, at your toes, and the hyena almost giving you a kiss. Um, just explain a little bit more about the Maverick filmmaker.
1: No, I don't know. <laughs> Maverick. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think it's it's seen by most as Maverick, but I, I I believe that I'm I'm just doing what comes naturally. You know, I don't. I mean, a cheetah coming to sniff and nibble my toes. There's there's nothing dangerous about that. There's nothing. But we've 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 grown up in this world where everybody's hyped up all this other stuff out of all sorts of proportion. I'm just trying to get us back to where we were, where we as hunter gatherers, how we used to walk around the plains and stuff. I go running here every day. Go jogging, you know, just to keep fit. When I get back to camp, i go for a run. I don't carry a weapon with me. And that's the other thing I want to mention. It's, it's, you know, to be able to do what I do, it's crucial that I don't carry a weapon um, because I need to react with animals one-on-one. So when I'm working with my hyenas, there's nobody – if there's anybody with me, there's no weapon. There's never a weapon around. And and the animals sense that because when you carry a weapon, you you have this this attitude, You you lose respect for the animal, you encroach in their space, and then they retaliate, and then you shoot it. What right do I have to shoot an animal if I've overstepped the mark? So I go in there one-on-one. And it's amazing the relationship you can develop with an animal because of that. And the other key thing is never – okay, I'm dealing mostly with predators. Those are what my movies are generally about. Never, ever feed the animal or tamper with their food. Don't even touch it. And once you once you do that and you work like that – I only realized this when I was doing my cheetah film and now back on hyenas um, – The relationship you develop, you will never have the same relationship that they even have with your cat or dog. Now, what I do with my hyenas and my cheetah, I play with them like you play with your cat and dog. But when you feed your dog and you go there and he's eating, often he'll growl at you. My cheetah never, ever growled or hissed at me. Yet you see these captive cheetah, the guys have had them in captivity for years. The guy walks in the pen and the cheetah charges and hits the ground, you know, very dramatic stuff. They don't actually attack them, but it's you know it's very aggressive. My cheetah never did that. So what I'm saying is my relationship with them is something just I don't want to call it supernatural, it's not, but it's it's very special because they're not they're not relying on me for food. And all they're getting from me is love and affection. And then you develop this incredible bond with them. They they go about their behavior very naturally because now they're not worried about your presence. That's why I'm able, like in Man Cheetah Wilds, and I shot the cheetah sequence on Life Story, you see how that shot. I was able to do that because of my relationship with animals. When they're killing an impala and they're wrestling, I'm right there. They're bumping into me. They don't care about me because we've developed this bond of of complete trust. Now, you could never get those shots with a mobile camera because the animal will be wondering, you know, what's that thing coming in? So that's why it's it's just taking it to another level, and I believe it is possibly a new way of filmmaking. But it takes time, and you know everything I've learned um, with all the animals. I've, I mean, I've I've had intimate. Dogs. They come to me for attention, and I stroke them, and I lay their backs, and I scratch them. with with leopard, cheetah, hyenas, wild dogs, I couldn't. I used to, I used to run with the dogs on the hunt. I spent four years with them. But I could never get that actual bonding. They would accept me within a few meters, but there was never any bonding. And I put that down to the fact that they so socially bonded with each other that I'm of no no consequence. But with all the other animals, it's happened. But I have had to learn this all on my own over time, and uh, it's just yeah, it's just a lot of a lot of animal understanding. And you you're not going there's no books on there to read. You just got to learn it and experience it. And and it, you know, for me, the huge thing is. I do it with complete confidence. Now animals, as you all know, pick this stuff up straight away when you're not confident. And and the confidence can't come from you saying in your head, oh no, I'm fine, I'm okay, it's confident nothing's gonna happen. The confidence has to be real, it's gotta come from inside, it's gotta come from the heart. Because if it doesn't, they pick that up and who knows how they're gonna react or what they're gonna do. So, you know, they're all those important little things, but they've taken a long time to learn and to understand and then I mean, just understanding animal behavior, all the different, you know, if you just look at an animal's tail, what it means in all the different species, you know, tail wagging in this animal means something different to the other one and different to the other one. So, you know, all those little nuances, you've got to just got to get to know them. And, I mean, if you had to take me from here to, to America and deal with, you know, North American animals, um, I would have to, you know, I'd have to start off very gingerly. And even... Even working here in in Southern Africa, um, when I move to a new area, I don't jump out the car and do what I used to do in the previous area because animals operate differently in different areas depending on all sorts of different conditions. And so you've got to to get to know them first and understand, you know, all the different things that they've been up against and and then fit in with that. So it's, yeah, it's a long process and it's… It's just yeah, getting to understand, and I think I have got to understand a lot of that, and, and so the maverick part comes in because I'm doing this stuff naturally, and people think it's you know ridiculous. I mean, hyenas coming and lying on their backs while I scratch their tummies, or running up to me and we tumble and we wrestle and running off. There's nothing maverick. It's just so natural, and, and that's that's what I like. you know my my man cheetah wild movie with Discovery Channel. When they saw it, they said, no, no, we, we, this looks too easy. This looks too natural. And that was, I said, that's beautiful. I'm glad you said that's how I want it to be. And then they had to, you know, they had to up the ante and bring somebody else in to up the whole thing to make it not as natural as it was. And I, I didn't really approve of that. I, I wanted to be seen that what I do is, is what I do. I don't do it for the camera. I do it because I love what I do. And, you know, the fact that the camera is a but I'm not doing it for the camera because I've done it. I, you know, I've done, I did this stuff before. People and wildlife, people were in wildlife movies when it was just pure wildlife. I was doing this on the side anyway. Nobody was filming it, but I was doing it because that's what I do. So yeah, it's just, it's just a very natural way, and and I think it's a, it's a different way of filmmaking, and and I'm seeing stuff, you know, up so up close and personal that I don't believe scientists will ever see. So it's yeah, there's a lot going on.
0: Well, and just to fill the viewers in or the listeners in um, on Man, Cheetah Wild, this show is um, literally, it's kind of an insight into how you work with the wildlife because it literally follows you. There's an, You have another camera person with you um, and you actually get up very, very close, as you say, to um, to the wildlife and, and film it from a very unique perspective. Um and um, yeah, there's some amazing, from what I've seen, I've not seen a full episode, but from what I've seen, there's some incredible stuff of you running with Cheetah and playing with hyenas and um, and even having some hair-raising moments with, with a rhino. I did see the Black Rhino sequence. Can you fill us in a little bit about that one?
1: That was, you wonder why Black Rhino in a Cheetah movie, but <laughs> they were there <laughs> And that guy who came that that guy who was shooting with me um, he was only there for six weeks of the two years that I was shooting so most of the time I was on my own doing that stuff but um, he happened to be there and that morning when uh, it was a fairly open area and it was the sun was rising and to find black rhino in the open is unusual they're usually in thick bush so here was this guy in the open silhouetted against the sunrise I had to get the shot so I, I left the car, and I walked about 100 meters away towards him. He was quite a long way off there. And I, got on, I was on the ground, and I got the silhouette, and he was walking across, and then something, I don't know, I was motionless. Something caught his attention. I think my very light-colored shirt. And uh, he turned, and he started coming towards me. <laughs> and then when he got close I thought, now what I do, there's not a tree around, there's nothing. So I got up from the camera, I left my camera there, and I jumped behind this little tree that wasn't, it was about three feet high. It was nothing. I don't know why I even bothered. And I stood there, and he came closer, and then he started walking towards my camera. And I thought, geez, dude, if you squash that, I'm going to be very upset. And uh, he, he got to about 10 meters, and then his attention came to me. He gave up on the camera, and he started walking towards me, and he gave a little mock charge. And then he stopped five meters away and I thought now what? I if he comes again I don't know what to do so as he gave another little started to come I lunged forward clapped my hands and shouted and thankfully he spun around and buggered off but it was yeah it was touch and go and it, it wasn't planned at all <laughs> I just wanted a silhouette dude you don't have to do that but yeah it was scary
0: and of course, you know, those things are highlighted in the show because I think you touched upon the fact that for you, this is your normal behavior out doing what you do. Um, but for TV, of course, those things are highlighted because, you know, it's it, they want it to be dramatic to, to sell the show, to have viewers' eyes on it. Yeah. Um, you know, what? what's your personal feeling about the the drama that's portrayed in wildlife shows these days? I mean, this is a fairly new thing in the last probably 10 to 15 years or so um, where we're really it's really more about reality drama than about the wildlife a lot of the time. You know, do you think that's going to be a thing of the future or, or um, you know, what, what's your personal view on that?
1: Well, yeah. You know, unfortunately, without the drama, we're not going to sell it. But it—it it is a lot about that. I mean, I'm this. I'm currently doing this 13 episode show, so I'm shooting one a week at the moment, which is about my life as a wildlife filmmaker making this hyena movie. And I've got I've got six GoPros on my vehicle, and an Osmo, and and I'm also shooting with my big Panasonic 4K. So I've I've got I'm fully rigged out to film me, and it's a one man show. Um, and I was out the car the other day when, with my hyenas that were on an eland carcass, and they were feeding all around me. And then out of nowhere, this big male lion charged in, um, totally unexpectedly, and he grabbed a hyena four meters away from me and killed it. Um, that's pretty serious drama, and, and uh, you know that that's that sort of stuff sells a show. I think what's happened is. People in wildlife is is going is something that we're not going to get away from the big, the big massive series that the mega series that the BBC do. There will always be those, and Disney Nature, you know, those big iconic films will always be there as the beauties and whatever. But I think all the other stuff now, people want to see, you know, people with wildlife and of it being out there on its own. It, you know, it's. I think mean, every other movie besides those ones is going to have people out there doing stuff. Um, I've just done another show with BBC, uh, Cheetahs Growing Up Fast, and you know I was in that show, although in a minimalistic way compared to Man, Cheetah, Wild, but um, people want to see that, and, and especially when they see the type of images that I'm shooting, um, they want to know how you're getting that stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's... Unfortunately, I think drama and, and, you know, villainizing hyenas is a great way. You know, for me, it's great because if I'm interacting with them, because they'd be so made such villains, people think, holy shit, this can't be real. This guy can't be sitting there. He can't be doing that. So it just ups the whole hype on it when actually I don't believe there's any hype because it's just such an easy, natural thing to do. Um, but yet it hypes them up and once you've got them hooked which is the important thing with my hyena mood I need to hook people and just if people are watching a, a hyena uh, just going surfing channels and they see hyenas they'll keep going but if they see me sitting with a hyena I think holy oh, shit what's that dude up to and then they'll watch it because there's such a hype on it um, and that's unfortunately you know where I think a lot of it's going um, and and you know we, we're not as I say we the, the purists and the, the, the converted, they want to see those nice big mega-series of the BBC, Disney Nature, and, and whatever. Um, but unfortunately, they're such a small minority. If we're really going to do something to save our planet, we need to get to the masses, and the masses want to see this other stuff, and they want to see drama, unfortunately. So we've got to give it to them. I just don't believe in wall-to-wall drama, you know, where it's... You, I, I did a film called predators at war for national geographic and you know i think once you've watched that you, you sort of get out of your seat and feel like you've been electrocuted because it's just bang 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 constant action and it's just too much you know i, I love the way that especially the europeans do movies where things settle down a lot more they let things settle down play out and then it comes and you have your dramas just a, a, a gentler way of doing it. Not just, it can't just be war, because it's not like that out there. It's not war-to-war war action. I mean, you, as you know, you, you sit there for days and you can shoot nothing and then suddenly yourself stuff happens. So, yeah, it's, you know, and I think, you know, putting people in just makes it more real than, than where it was in the past, where you could put two people together and they could edit a movie and come up with something totally different. Um, by putting people in, it, it does... To some degree, I think, balance it yeah.
0: So, how have, you, um, how have you got your shows, the, these newer shows where you're the talent in there, you're also directing, producing, and you're the cinematographer? How did you, um, and I was going to say, how did you sell those shows to the networks, but maybe you didn't? Can you just explain a little bit about how these shows came to fruition? Did, did a network come and um, contact you, or did you actually approach them with a proposal?
1: Well, firstly, yeah, all those titles I do, but um, I only get paid for one of them. <laughs> but um, I was approached by a network uh, to do something like this, and it's taken it's taken us about a year to get off the ground. Um, and and you know, it's something that nobody else is doing, and it's something new. So it was a chance we took. And as I say, we we producing one show a week. It's all shot by myself. So it's, it's a very different thing, but it's very real and it, it is reality and it's behind the scenes of making my hyena movie and hopefully through this it will obviously promote promote the, the, the final movie as well.
0: So, sorry, just to reiterate there, at the beginning you said you didn't get paid for
1: any of them? No, no. I said I didn't get paid for all of them. I only got paid for one of those roles.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, right, right.
1: I've got you. <laughs> <laughs> well, doing, of course. I'm doing five people's work but I'm only being paid for one of them.
0: Right. Well, and that's a, yeah. that's a pretty common thing, right, in wildlife filmmaking and so yeah. this is something that comes up quite a lot. And, and listeners always want to know, you know, the big question of how do you fund your films and how do you get this? And I think um you know, it's it's similar to the question of, you know, learning and what gear you should have. Um, people don't realize that most of the time a huge amount of work goes in that's never paid for before you get a paid gig. Um, or you do a lot of work up front, you know, just to get to that one thing that then sets you on a a career path. Um, And yeah, with uh, on your website, with most of your shows where you've done all of these different roles, normally, there would be five different people being paid for those. But it's a good one to to let people know that when you're taking on all of those roles, you're not being paid for them all. (laughs) You are just getting the one. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And you know, the way I work is um, for, for anybody to get a movie commissioned, you know, commissioned is, is a really hard thing. And so I often end up shooting half or three quarters of a movie before I, I get it signed up. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I, I take up to two years because I develop these bonds with the animal first and have to go through that whole stage before I'm able to really get all the, the cherry stuff. So my projects will take eighteen months to two years to shoot. Now I know a lot of movies, wildlife movies, one hours. um, Guys go out there for five, six, seven months, and they've got a movie. Now they're being paid the same as what I'm being paid. And so, yeah, it's it's not easy when you're spending that amount of time. Now for me, you know, a lot of what I do and why I do is it's the lifestyle. I love what I do. I love being out here, and so I'm just trying to, you know, find a means. To, for me to live this lifestyle. And also, you know, when you're living a lifestyle like this, you can't be selfish with it. And I feel like I, I have to share it with the world. Um, the film and, and photography provides the means to do that. And also it provides the challenge. You know, you can't just sit around in the bush all day being, you know, not with some special goal. So there, there is a goal there and the challenge is to get all that sort of stuff. I mean, this morning I was trying to get a GoPro on a lion kill. And, uh, yeah, that just added a whole different bit. You know, otherwise I could have just watched them doing their thing. But now I need to get a GoPro there and it's got to be right on top of them. And so those sort of challenges are all quite exciting and part of why we do it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's that's probably the best answer is it's a lifestyle and, and it's not a... I think many people get into this expecting to be paid an hourly wage and see themselves driving across Africa for a year and being paid every hour. And of course, that's not not the reality of it at all. Uh, most of the time, there's a set amount of money coming in for a show and, and that's it. And I think we've all been there when we've gone way over budget and we end up spending most of our own time to finish a show or to get the shots we need, and that—that um, that is just the reality of it.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah.
0: Now, um, just going back to that, when you uh, you say that you get most of the show together before um, before ever approaching them. So, now you've filmed um, a bunch of your your footage. Do you edit it yourself? Do you get it into a place where it is a a kind of teaser for a show before you approach a network?
1: Um, yeah, I, I can I do that and I do put the tea, but I don't I don't try and put together a whole one hour you know, a rough cut or whatever. I don't get that involved in it. Um, I, you know, I have a couple of times spent three months in an edit and I I don't want to do that again because it's, you know, spending three months in Washington for me is, it's, it's not fun. Um, I want to be out here doing what I do and enjoying that. And, you know, with technology today, I mean, like I'm talking to you right now on Skype, um, you know, we can upload stuff. So guys are editing in Washington, they can send me a cut tonight, I can have a look at it and give feedback. Um, so I don't need to be there anymore and I and I don't want to be in the edit suite. I'd rather be out here doing that stuff. I do I mean, I on my hyena queen film, I shot for a year on that. And um I just done Predators at War film for National Geographic, which when it went out was their highest rated movie. Um so I Straight after that, I took them this hyena movie idea. They didn't come to the party on it. Um, and eventually, I, after shooting for a year, I went to Jackson Hole Film Festival with a little promo, and suddenly everybody wanted the show. Um, and then Geographic took it. So, yeah, it's, you just never know with these things. And, you know, as, as good as it is having your last show being the highest rated or whatever, or winning Emmys and things, those they, I suppose, they give you a little bit of credibility, but I still don't know what it is that actually gets things properly or signed up when we do. It's, it's I don't understand the business. And although, you know, because I'm I'm only doing a movie every two years, so it's not like other guys who are doing like three movies in two years. It's um, yeah, I'm not I'm not in that whole ball of buying and or selling and selling movies. It's a, it's a different thing for me.
0: It does seem that there isn't one set formula and I think that's important for people to know that um, it very much depends on timing, you know, what's going on at that time in terms of selling or pitching a show and also the, the individual you're pitching it to. I mean we're, we're all different, we all like to see, you know, different things um, and a lot of the time when these commissioning editors change um their roles and new people come in they look for new type of content so it is that you know there isn't this one thing that um is going to get taken up um people are always looking for very different shows and you mentioned the film festivals are and going to jackson hole and Um, I always like to talk about the festivals because they play such an important role and you just mentioned there that you took a promo and you got it taken up um, and probably, you know, many that weren't taken up because that's the reality of it, right? Um, But just explain you know, what you feel about film festivals and, you know, why it's worth going to those
1: Well, yeah, I think it it is, and you know, just to get known, in the early days, I'm talking, so I've been filming nearly 30 years now, but in those early days, um, I worked for Richard Goss for six years, and then I went out on my own. And I, I went to Survival, Anglia, well, you'll know them in the UK. And I sat down with them, and I showed them a film that I just shot. And, Well, no, before that, they, I said to them, look, has a, a treatment to do, there's a film on jackals, are you interested in stuff? They said, yeah, this looks good, but um, we don't have any slots available. Come back and see us next year. So I said, well, I've just shot this movie. Don't you Please can you just watch it and so you know what my work's like and whatever. So two producers sat down, watched the movie, and they said, oh, well, maybe we can fit you in here. Or maybe we can fit it in there. And it was the fastest contract I ever had. Two months later, I had a contract. Now, that's because I had a product. When you go in there as a nobody, you, you are a nobody, and why must they take the risk on you? It's really scary. So you've got to go and shoot a whole lot of it yourself. And that's why the film festivals get to know the people, get to see what's being done, show them your stuff, take little promos and, and get them to know you. Because with, with nothing, you are a nothing. And I was at another broadcaster one year where this, they came to me and I was doing some work with them and they showed me this treatment. And they, I looked at it and I said, shit, this looks really good. And it was a South African guy, but I, I can't remember his name. But anyway, they said to me, do you know him? So I said, no, I, unfortunately, I don't know the guy. And they tore it up in front of me um, just because you're a nobody. So we, the, the, the huge advantage these days, I mean, those days we were shooting films, so there was massive costs and things. The advantage today is you can shoot stuff on your cell phone. You can do promos and anything on your cell phone. You can edit them yourself, get it out there for, for very little money and go and promote yourself and, and show what you want to do. But back then it was really hard but you've got to have something without without anything you you are a nobody and you're going to battle away
0: yeah I think that's really really important and valuable advice because uh, um, yeah as you say they, they want to take a risk on someone who's been out there and done it and has proven that they can do they can do it. Um, rather than you know we can all walk in there with a piece of paper but um, once they see what you've done that makes the difference and and again you know with someone like yourself you have a very unique perspective on what's going on you're getting footage that no one else has ever got it may be of the animals that we've seen many many times in the past but it's a it's a different perspective and now again moving forward with these incredible action cameras that you can go and stick on a kill (laughs) and and you know probably have a view straight up a lion's throat. Um, Again, it's it's another perspective. And I, I think it's really important just to reiterate at this point that, you know, when people see you doing what you do, that you have been doing this for years. Right. You understand animals behavior. And again, to reiterate that you you know more about the behavior, you learn a lot and have the experience of that behavior of wildlife really before ever having picked up a camera. And I think that's so important to just, uh, you know, come back to because. You know, I think we, as viewers, so many people in this day and age see so much content, and I've met people who just want to grab a camera and run out into the wild up to the first animal they see and start filming like that. And, you know, that's a really dangerous, dangerous thing to do. Yeah. uh, you know that that's going to get someone killed. So <laughs> we we need to be very clear on the fact that you are um, you've done this for many many years, and you are a professional at what you do.
1: No, I think you totally. And, and you know, I put it on my Facebook blog and stuff. You know, don't try this at home because it's taken many many years to to get to that stage. Um, so don't just think you can run out and do it. It's you are going to have problems.
0: Um, i mean it's a it's a lifelong commitment, isn't it? Wildlife filmmaking isn't one of these things that really you take up um you, you know and do for a summer it, it's a it's a lifelong commitment. Most of the people that I've spoken to on this show, you know they have given their lives over to it. And not through, not for making money as a career. They've done it because they're passionate. They either have something driving them because they have a message to tell, um, or it is their life. It's a lifestyle. Like with yourself, you want to be out there. You want to be living the lifestyle you're living, and that—that's giving your life over to it, right?
1: Yeah, it's exactly that. And, and I think that some people get into the industry on a sort of from the film front. Um, and they, they 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 don't have that passion for wildlife, and, and it definitely tells in in the product and stuff. And so I think yeah, if if you if you if you to be a filmmaker, if you're passionate about wildlife, you don't need to go and study it because you're gonna you passionate, you're gonna know it, you're gonna feel it, you're gonna do it. Just go and do a six month or a year course on on film, and then get out there and do it and and, and go for it. Yeah
0: fantastic well um kim just one last question for you if you had to grab one piece of gear say out of your truck or your tent and um and take it into the field to film and you only were able to carry the one camera and lens what would you grab what would be your kind of your one piece of gear that would do it all for you if you couldn't carry anything else
1: okay well firstly my i my Panasonic Vericam 4K with the 50 to 1000 lens weighs about 20 kilos, so that won't be the camera. Um, I, you know, I've just got this Osmo and, uh, and, a, and an amazing little camera. So for, you know, for doing, you know, all your moving shots, your selfies while you're moving, for getting in close, I think, I think for today, for the for my style of filmmaking. Um, the Osmo would be the camera I would take. You know, when I go, when I do, when I leave my car and I go walking, I take the Osmo. That's what it is. I don't need anything else. That's doing it all for me and it's rock steady and it's just brilliant.
0: Wow, and that that's under $1,000, I think, these days.
1: Well, yeah, exactly. But I'm saying for my type of filmmaking. You know, and yeah. so, yeah, it's very specific.
0: Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, it's always interesting because, um, you know, I, I still love, I mean, I have an array of cameras now, but I still love the little ergonomic um, camcorders, yeah. which, um, you know, throughout my career, you know, we use those extensively as like a B camera. Um, and I still have a, a Sony EX-1R, which is kind of old now, but um, in today's uh, technology terms. Um, but, you know, they, they're just so easy to use when you can just jump out of a vehicle and grab some Very fast quick shots and turn it around on yourself and do selfie type stuff uh you know i love those cameras they they this the great quality and you can get everything you need really fast and i think so many people are struggling these days because they buy dslrs and they buy you know a lens and then realize the lens isn't really what they need and then they need a whole support system and uh, you know uh, something to record audio and suddenly they they wanted to go simple, so they got a DSLR, and they ended up with this gigantic rig that looks like a Meccano set.
1: <laughs> you know? Oh, I hate that You know, those DSLR, I, I just, oh, you know, I, they, they just bug the hell out of me, because it is, you know, you can't just have the camera. you got to have this whole rig, and you think, well, why don't you just get a proper camera instead of playing with that? Yeah, I hate them. I mean, you can't fuck right, the yeah. and it's a nightmare, so no, I don't, don't go there, and I'm going blind now. I can't see properly. My eyes are stuffed. So, Osmo does it all for me. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: there you go. Well, that's fantastic, Kim. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day. Where are you headed next? What what's coming up? To it's got to be coming up to four o'clock in the afternoon now. Where where are you going next?
1: Yeah, I'm headed out now. I'll be going up. Seeing you know, there's a lion kill school on that island. I'll see what they're up to, and then I'll head up to hyena den. Um, there's some young cubs in there and some of my friends so i'll go and hang out with them full the moon's nice and full tonight and when the moon's up and it's full and bright you know i don't need lights i can i walk around with them and it's just super cool
0: fantastic well take care out there and uh thanks for your time again really appreciate it
1: jake thanks a lot man really appreciate it too man cheers then
0: If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com, where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening.